And we are in 1 John, and we're right at the end of 1 John. A matter of fact, Lord willing, I guess we will finish 1 John. It's kind of sad to always finish a book. It seems like we've been in this book not too long. And uh, so here we are. And you probably might be asking, what are we going to do next week? And I just can't tell you for sure what we're going to do next week. We'll find out, won't we? Anyway, we seem to live uh, in an age that um, has more and more knowledge, yet fewer and fewer certainties. In fact, there, uh, it's, someone has said this, a specialist is someone who knows more and more about less and less, until finally all he knows is there's nothing to know. <laughs> he doesn't know anything <laughs> as he finds out. seems to be the world in which we live. Albert Einstein, one of the greatest minds, at least in some avenues, said this, You imagine that I look back on my work with calm and satisfaction, but there is not a single concept of which I am convinced that it will stand firm. I feel uncertain whether I am in general on the right track. And listen to this, what else he said, I don't want to be just right, I want to know whether I am right. He wasn't certain, even with some of the scientific facts that he brought forth mathematically. That's profound. There's a, another uh, famous novelist, at least in Britain, named Priestley, and he once uh, declined an invitation to write an article on his own religious beliefs because he said he was better able, rather than confirm and affirm his faith, he was really better to deny it. it he would deny it. it. It seems like to deny, rather than affirm, is a lot easier to today. And uh, he even said at the end of his life, I regret this because now is the time for gigantic affirmations. We really need to be certain about things. This is the age that we really need for that. And we don't have it. Now, if we live in a world that despises absolute truth, which seems like it does, we also live in the church age that has come to despise doctrine. Right? And there's a story about a youth leader who would dodge questions from um, the, the teens. And they would have some really tough questions, but they were good questions. Matter of fact, we should really desire that people would ask us questions that we'd be able to give the hope that's within us. Uh, but how he would dodge a question says, you know, we can never know that until we get to heaven. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we'll know that. Perhaps when we get to heaven, we'll know that. Oh, uh, I don't know what the answer is to that. Maybe one day we'll know. Now, sometimes that might be the answer, but it's not the answer to all questions, is it? We should be able to give that. Uh, and, and so, this one teenage girl got so frustrated, frustrated, I'm frustrated at saying frustrating, she said that we can get all the facts at school, but yet here in church, we can't get anything but somebody's opinion or they don't give you anything for sure that you can know. Now, that's sad, isn't it? whenever they can get the answers to evolution, to how we got here, which is evolution through the public schools. There's no God. Uh, religion is a substandard. It's sub-intellectual. It's just a philosophy. It's not a, a way of life and not really a way of, uh, of true belief. And so all you get from the pulpits are just little stories and trinkets, pulpit opinions, and uh, mere conjecture rather than the authoritative preaching of the absolute certainty of the Word of God. And so when we know we can go into this and realize what God is saying, we know for certain. Now, isn't that good? It's good to know that, isn't it? Now, John, in First John, has not left any of us wondering about certain things that may not be certain. He wants to make sure that you know what you believe and why you believe it. He's the apostle of assurance, isn't he? And of course, you can go to his Gospel of John and read that and get plenty of assurance there. And you can think of John 10 where we see the, the, the shepherd of the sheep 
And he shows that we're protected by the Father, protected by the Son. Now the atheist might say this, I believe there is no God. And John comes back and says, I know there is a God. The agnostic says, I just don't know if there's a God or not. I just don't know. We can't know for sure. I don't know. And John comes back and says, absolutely, I am sure there is a God. And not only is there a God, but I know Him. And John even said, I walked with Him. I I personally talked with Him. I could touch Him. I know who that God is. He revealed Himself to me, John says. And He's revealed Himself to us here through His Word. I know that same God. I know He loves me. That's what John says. And so, we do too. We know. We know for certain. At least there's some things we can say, I know for certain. A lot of things we don't know for certain, but we know that when God spoke, God spoke truth. It's absolute, for sure. There's no more guessing. There's no more hoping. This is not a hope so faith, is it? In the sense that, oh, I hope I, I'm a believer. I hope I can, I'm a Christian now, but I, I hope I am at the end. Oh, wouldn't that be scary if we had to live that kind of life the rest of our lives? Who knows? But we do. And we can know that we have eternal life. That's what John says in verse 13 of the last chapter. And then he says you can know that you'll have your prayers answered. God will hear your prayers. So he had absolute confidence. The Christian can have absolute confidence. And that is what John is really trying to do as he closes up this epistle, this great letter that he wrote. He wants to make certain that the true believers would know they have eternal life. That's what his whole idea. From verses 13 through 21, and we started 13 last week, we did verse 13 and 14. From, from there, we see the key verse of really 1 John is that verse 13. I write these things, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Isn't that good? I mean, we could go around wondering the rest of our Christian lives whether we're going to be Christians or not, but God, without any holes barred, makes sure that the Christian can know. Verse 14 was about answering prayer, and that's where we left off last week. Uh, We will continue with that idea of God answering prayer and we being certain that He will, and then we'll complete the remainder of the chapter looking at the rest of the certainty. So, eternal life and then answered prayer. Uh, Let's pick it up at verse... I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask... And He will give Him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that He should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Okay, that's the first section that we're going to deal with. And you can see that there could be a little bit of a problematic verse here uh, or, or two. Uh, But I think as as we go through it, maybe it won't be as difficult as as it looks. Uh, The the key evidence that one is a Christian, that you know that you can have eternal life, is that you know that God answers prayer. If, If you know that God does answer prayer, that we talk to God, if you know that, that's a pretty good certainty that uh, you are a Christian when you, when you know that God hears. Uh, we can be certain. We have the resources of God. And I mean, it's at our disposal for merely asking. Now, like we said last week, there are qualifications. It is about His will. It's something that Jesus would ask. It's something that would be biblical, that would line up with God's truth. And with those, that helps us. And then you also know that you may not see that answer till much later. You may not see it. But we know that God answers because we live by faith and not by sight or feelings. A lot of times people will say, just go by what your heart says. 
I want to tell you, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? That's our insight. That's our emotions and such. I mean, that's uh, something that can lead us. Just let your heart lead. No, no, no. Let truth lead. Let what is truth. Because our heart can go anywhere. Our feelings, our emotions, all those kind of things. Don't let them lead you. Don't let them lead you. They can lead you astray. Um, so John wants to know, or wants you to know, that your your prayers are heard. So while we have eternal life in verse thirteen, and we know it points to the time that we'll be with Him in glory. In the meantime, we have to live here on the earth. And while we live here on the earth, we have direct access to the throne of God. We need help while we're here, don't we? We'll always need help. We need God's mercy and grace constantly. But we have confidence in approaching that throne all the time. Constantly. Without any um, anything keeping us back. Nice to know. Okay. Um, and if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. We are petitioning Him. We're asking a petition uh, for ourselves, for instance. Certain things that we'd like to, uh, to see in our own lives. And it's not bending our will, right? Or, or, or bending His will, but it's letting Him show us what His will is. We're not trying to come up there and have Him change what His will is. We want to know what that will is. So we bring our request to Him. That's the idea of bringing petitions, our request, so that we may further learn what He's planned for us. He has a great plan. We want to touch into that and find out what the heart of God is. Not what our heart is, but what the heart of God is. That's, that's what's important. Prayer is asking for God things that He's already promised to give. That way you know your prayers will always be answered. We know. He hears us. Uh, Verse 13, look at this word, know. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 14, we see know. We know. Twice. Verse 15, I mean. Verse 18, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. We know that. Look at verse 19. We know that we are of God. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding and that we may know Him who is true. Did you notice some words there that uh, stand out? We know this. I think that's rather incredible. He hears us whatever we ask. Hey, we we should turn to Psalm 34. Give us uh, a really good foundation here. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That's His people. And His ears are open to their cry. Do you like that? His ears are open to our cry, to what we are requesting of Him. He is listening. I like that. Verse 17, The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles, or maybe through their troubles. But He does that. He is the great deliverer. Look in John 14, 13. And this sounds somewhat familiar from what our text is today and from what we've heard many times. Jesus tells the disciples this as He gives them great comfort. Whatever you ask in My name, there's the key, in Jesus' name, asking what is consistent with who Jesus is, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He wants to answer our prayers as our prayers are lining up with what the Son would ask so What's the reason that the Father would be glorified? That's the reason that we pray. That is the real reason we exist. It's the reason we're here today. It's the reason that we're going to go through the rest of the day and through the rest of the, this coming week. About the Father's will. So, we know we have uh, the petitions that we can bring to Him and He's going to hear. Now, verse 16 and 17 presents... Quite a quandary here. 
This kind of prayer is that we've been talking about is on the behalf of ourselves and seeing what the, the Lord has and, and things that we know that what He would want to answer. Now He goes into something that it's keeping with that same context. We're still in the prayer thing here. It's on the behalf of others. Now it's bringing prayers for other people Praying for all people is what we should be doing, right? People that, that we know and uh, people that, that are lost. And How about people that um, maybe have wandered off the path, right? Um, we're, we're to pray for. But then there are some people that he says in this text, in verse 16, that we're not to pray for. Now that's a strange thing. This, this section, it seems like a very strange section to be talking about here. Um, It's the one who has sinned, and that sin leads to death. Okay. And you're not to pray for them. Well, what does that mean? Have you been asking yourself as you read that? Uh, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he'll give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. Okay. Anything that's not leading to death, you want to be praying for those people. Okay. Verse, uh, at the end of 16 now, there is a sin leading to death. He said, well, what's that? I did not say that he should pray about that. Now, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Okay. We have to kind of iron this out a little bit. Uh, what do we do with this? What, what, what does this mean, Lord? What's going on here? Well, first of all, um, let's look at the sin not leading to death. Okay, the sin not leading to death. There's going to be some people who would be in sin, but it's not so bad that they're going to be taken out by the Lord. Hang with me. Uh, These people have gone wayward. And we need to be praying for those people. Okay? Uh, They might be believers who have fallen into... Sin. Pretty bad sin. But they're certainly not going to be taken out by the Lord. And so we should be praying for those people. Uh, we know there are people like backsliders. People who have... Um, they, we know they know the Lord. We know they're Christians. But boy, right now, it, it sure doesn't look like it. Well, what do we do? We pray for them, Right? We should be praying for anybody who is not walking really in good fellowship with the Lord. Be praying. That's the first step in dealing with sin in the church. Um, When you deal with church discipline, the very first part of church discipline, it's really simple. It's just whenever somebody sees a sin or somebody has been offended or you've experienced something that's not right, you know it to be right, and they're not doing it or whatever they're doing is not right, what do you do? Well, first thing you should do is go where? Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. Don't go to somebody else blabbing about that other person's sin because now you've just sinned. Go to the Lord. Then who do you go to after that? You go to the person who has either offended you, offended somebody else, or is living in, in, um, in sin, and it's obvious it's going to hurt the church. You know, We're not going to address everybody for every little thing that we think to be sin. Uh, we, would, uh, we, we would never have any time to do anything else. You know, we, we, we have battles with sin, we know that. But if something is really sticking out there and it's making an effect on other people, uh, families and, and, and the church, well, we need to go to that person. We don't go to somebody else and try to get it settled there, behind somebody's back. That's not where it starts. If you look at Matthew, you find out that's how it really starts. And matter of fact, if it can be nipped in the bud there, praise the Lord, hallelujah, that's simple, that's easy. You've won your brother and everything's just great. And, and that's the way that it can happen. Not always, but you, you hope so. You pray about that. We go right to God, and then if it continues, you know, you know he, he gives us the right... Uh, attitude and the right things to say and, and we address it. Now, that's the people that we pray for and we know there's something that's that's there. You keep praying. 
If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. God will answer that prayer. God will answer that. Now there's a sin that leads to death. Now here's where it really gets tricky. The other part's not too bad, right? You can say, well, how do we know that that's a sin that's leading to death or not leading to death, right? Well, most of the time it's probably not going to be leading to death. So what is it? Well, there are different views. <laughs> there are a lot of different views on a text like this. Anytime you get into problematic verses, and I'm not saying there's error there, we just have to take our finite minds and try to find the infinite mind of God who wrote through John by the uh, Holy Spirit and pinned this down. When John wrote it, I don't think it was probably that difficult. We have to get into the language a little bit and the customs. We're going back a couple thousand years and maybe trying to uh, tap into this a little bit closer. Um, There is the Roman Church which believes in venial sins and mortal sins. And uh, so therefore, if they have a mortal sin... Uh, really, there's no use to even pray for them. That means, you know, it's a mortal sin. To me, means they're going to hell. But uh, really, that's not what that means there. Other people will say, well, whatever you killed, whatever killed you at the time, is that sin that led to your death. There was some kind of sin that caused that and caused you to die. I don't agree with that at all. Just because people die, it's not because somebody sinned. Maybe sin in general, you know, mankind has to die because of the original sin, right? I mean, and who wants to stay in these bodies forever? And we're not, according to John, we're not supposed to pray for people that have sinned, leading to death. Can they not be forgiven of that sin? Well, that's what we're. Wouldn't we pray for me, like? Well, yeah, hang on. <laughs> That's right where we're going. That's what everybody's thinking, right? You're thinking that. Okay, what do we do about these people? Because we are to be praying for people. But there's something that's going to keep people maybe from living. Maybe there's something there. And this is where this gets very controversial. And it's, it's kind of a tough passage. But I don't believe it is. I don't think it's that tough. But remember, the context is verse 14, right? And it's about prayer. And it's praying for people. We know that God answers. But there is one situation, one kind of prayer that God's not going to answer. How are we going to know that, though? Well, if you pray for someone who has committed a sin leading to death, then your prayer is not going to get answered. Uh, God has already decided what the future of that person is going to be, and that's final. We don't always know that. That's, that's the thing. And the context of this is answered prayer, and we have to remember that the overall arching point here is being made is that we can be sure that God answers prayer, but sometimes there's an extreme exception. Sometimes there's something that goes beyond. We don't really know. So we keep praying for people and finally it gets to a point where somebody has just done... the And, and God only knows, ultimately, where uh, there could be... Let's say Alistair Begg showed this as like the, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. And now you're asking, I wonder if I ever blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Well, if you're asking that question, no. Because <laughs> we're talking about a hardness. We're talking such a hardening that they have turned away from God they never really knew God uh, that's, at least as far as an unbeliever is concerned I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself but um, if, if somebody has gone to the full extent and God is going to take them out no matter what no matter how much prayer is said for them then it's impossible that our prayer is going to be heard at that time he can say okay listen God's going to hear your prayer but I'm going to tell you there's one time when he's not Whenever there's somebody that he has already, and of course God has uh, uh, the specific very day, uh, you know, the time, the hour that a person's going to die anyway. But somehow our prayers come into play here, and where our finiteness and His infiniteness, infiniteness comes in, uh, it's it's hard to detect. But we know what we're supposed to do. We are to be praying for people. So don't expect anything to change if that person has committed a sin unto death. And you can say, Lord, why did 
You take him out. Why did he have to die? I prayed, and your prayer and your word here says that if I pray, that you'll answer. And and you didn't answer, God. You didn't answer. Well, that's the kind of prayer, and that that's an extreme. But that's why. It, it, this involves two classifications. Let's first take an unbeliever. Okay. The unbeliever, what that death is, is eternal death. There is, uh, there is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. Okay, there is a sin. There's sin leading to death. Let's take the unbeliever, and then we'll come back and look at, at a believer. Because it possibly could be both of these guys. Definitely could uh, be an unbeliever here. It's the attitude of that sinner that John has in mind here. The unbeliever is refusing cleansing and forgiveness from the only solution that is offered. There's only one solution to have one sin forgiven. Now, if we're talking about an unbeliever, that's understandable. That's easy, isn't it? If they are not forgiven people, they can't go into heaven, right? Look in Hebrews 6. Trying to answer this this hard question here. Matter of fact, if, if we start at verse 4 and go through 6, this is talking about people who are not real Christians, but they profess to be Christians. They look like they're Christians. Uh, they made a profession and everything. Sometimes they can even sound like they're Christians, but they're really not. Now it says, For it is impossible. This is a warning. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. They heard, they heard the truth. They tasted the heavenly gift. They they it's like they took it in and, and tasted it. It's not that they eat of it, but they tasted it. And have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They saw the Holy Spirit work in the body of Christ. They saw their neighbors and they saw um, their friends and their family and how the Holy Spirit worked in their lives. They experienced all, all this is going on. And they tasted the good Word of God. They tasted it again. And the powers of the age to come, all the things. They even saw some miracles. Look at verse 6. If they fall away... And what he's saying, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. The warning is, if these people who are walking on a tightrope, they're in between, and really they're not believers, but they, they profess to be, but they've not come all the way over, and that's what all of Hebrews is about. There's warnings, warnings, warnings. And for those people that get that warning, they need to come all the way over and do it now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't let your heart continue to be hardened. And so they put Him to an open shame. They crucify Him. Uh, Their attitude is that they have a final rejection of Jesus Christ. It's a bitter, hardened resistance to the truth of God and the Word about Jesus Christ and the Gospel. And sooner or later, and that's the way that we, we all are until He comes in and opens the hearts up. But if they continue with that kind of attitude, eventually there's going to be a, that sin that leads to death. It's a sin of, of unbelief. It's a continual attitude. It's a mindset constantly. They'll eventually die in their sin, won't they? The sin that leads to what kind of death? Physical death. They're already spiritually dead. Uh, it might be one who apostatizes. He's been in the church, maybe there for years. He turns his back on the Lord. He detests Him. Uh, he risks his, uh, takes his fist up in defiance against Him. He hates His truth. He makes his final, ultimate rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's it be known to himself and everybody else around. This man has just made a, uh, a profession of Christ and now he turns totally away from it and he's showing his conversion was not true. And in 1 John 2.19, we have already seen what this kind of person is. John warned about some of these false teachers. And it says in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They really weren't of us. For if they had been of us, if they'd really truly been they would have continued with us. Makes sense, right? But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. They left. They left the faith. They knew full well. And they went on to their Gnostic type heresies and false teaching and and beliefs that were against the person of Christ. They made it very aware. 
And that's where it comes to a time that possibly that person has sinned and that's the sin that leads to death. We know that we're to pray for people's spiritual condition. We're, we're to pray for the lost people. If one is in such a prolonged rebellion, we would think it to be God's will to pray for them. And, and is it God's will? You bet. Keep praying. Keep praying for, for people like that. But if he dies in his sin, that means God didn't really answer the prayer that they would be restored. We can be certain that God answers prayer may not turn out the way that we would want. Obviously, we have prayed for people and they've never become believers and then we've seen some people die and we know, as far as we know, they never became Christians. Well, but we we prayed for them. Was that wrong? No. Uh Uh-uh. But there might be a time when uh, it's like uh, maybe God's not going to restore them. And we shouldn't give up on prayer. That's not what John is saying. But John is. He's not forbidding prayer here for this type of person that is really exposing what he really is about. But John is like saying, I'm not sure you ought to pray about it. Um, He's unsure whether maybe we should pray about somebody who definitely has apostatized, made it very manifest what they're about, who they are, uh, there's a surety that we're to pray for ones who have wandered, right? Would you say that we are to continue to pray for people who have wandered, whether they be believers or unbelievers? Right now we're talking about unbelievers, right? And we know that. We know that God wants us to pray for them, so we do it. And God, uh, remember, His answer always uh, is going to be there. It might be way in the future, and it's not going to be always what we want, Right? But remember, God does answer. That's what He says here. We intercede for people for their full restoration and for their joy, right? We want them to know Christ, to be joyous in that. Do you know anyone who needs this? Does anybody here know some some sinners out there who have not been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ? Put up your hands. Everybody, right? We know people that way. We continue to, to pray for them, alright? Until there might be a time when we realize that uh, there's no use for me to pray. I don't know what else to pray anymore. Matter of fact, you can get to a point, Lord, I don't even know what to pray about this person. Lord, it's Your will and I turn them over to You. I I have a desire, but Lord, what's what's going to happen here? You know, so sometimes we, we kind of give up on it. And it might be the sense that maybe what John is saying here. No, we're not to give up on people. I think when it comes to a point where we don't know what else to pray, we continue to pray for the salvation. And we might not ever know. Keep praying for people unless you know for certain that, hey, um, unless God really intervenes here, and He can. And that's why this is a tricky verse. Uh, we continue to pray until we know that, uh, you know what, I think... I think uh, and especially if somebody's at the death's doors and they're still denying Jesus Christ, what else can you pray? You can pray for salvation, but what if it seems like God has made up His mind? And it's a tough shot to call. I'd rather be uh, continuing to pray for that person and not making a decision to let God... But John says you may not get your prayer answered. At least you can say, okay, yeah, I'll maybe answer my prayer Remember, it was no, but it wasn't for restoration and joy. And so I can't come back and say, well, see, God doesn't answer prayer. There's a time. And there are a lot of things maybe that we haven't been uh, coming up in as far as His will is concerned. But that's what I say. It, it is, it's, it's, it's difficult. And we're not always going to be able to read exactly where that's at. But that would be for an unbeliever. What about a believer? What about the sin of a believer? Is there a sin that leads to death? Well, it wouldn't be spiritual death. Because we know that if you're a Christian um, and and you have eternal life, eternal life is exactly that, right? You, you can know you have eternal life. So for a Christian, he, he doesn't apostatize. A Christian cannot reject Jesus Christ. And if he does, then he's not a Christian anyway. Uh, this could be one who is in such a sin that my, maybe God just takes him out. Maybe the testimony that he has, it would be better for the church and the testimony of Jesus Christ that he not be here and for himself before he does more damage to his own life and everybody else around him. 
a situation that maybe compromises the church. The Lord has to remove people. I still think that He does it today. We may not think of it that way, but it could possibly be. You remember Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira? And you remember they lied to the Holy Spirit? And they, they wanted to really be helpful and put money, but they actually held some money back and made it look like they gave a lot more than they did. And it was okay what they did if they wouldn't have lied about it, making it look like they gave more. And God was so concerned about the early church at that time that He was not going to uh, let that happen. He purified the church. He took out Ananias and his wife came in there later after that and the same thing happened to her because she was a part of it. And Peter was there. He knew exactly what happened because the Holy Spirit there was intervening. Yeah. So what do we do with that? Well, God took them out. Well, he, eventually He's going to kill us all anyway. But sometimes there's going to be a certain sin that takes away the purity of the church. Look in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Here is the Lord's Supper. And you remember that there were people coming into the Lord's Supper and they had the love feast. And so what's going on here? Um, some of them are actually eating of the Lord's Supper or the meal and they are beating the punch or, or, or eating before some other people come who are even who are poor, who don't even have a meal to eat. And they eat it and it's all gone before they even show up. And what kind of attitude is that, right? They're not sharing this love feast or this fellowship meal. And so in verse 27, we'll start there. First Corinthians 11, 27. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. That is a word for have died. Some are weak, some sick, some even died because they were taking of this Lord's Supper in the wrong way. It says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. God would not have to do this. But because they had taken this wrongly and abused the Lord's Supper, the Lord had to take some out. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. See? But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home lest he come together for judgment. And the rest, I'll set in order when I come. Wow. There's a discipline. The Lord had to do it and He had to take them out. Who knows how many had died. Many were sick. Uh, then in 1 Corinthians 5, there was uh, a, a moral issue that the church hadn't dealt with. They weren't doing the discipline that they were to be doing. You know what the Lord does sometimes? If the church doesn't do it, the Lord does it. church needs to do it. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5 um, uh, let's pick it up in verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such in- sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles. They don't even do this thing. Here it's happening in the church that a man has his father's wife. Now that's probably, the way that that's worded, is uh, a mother, or, or, well, one, not a mother-in-law, but uh, uh, what a, a stepmother. He says, and you're puffed up. You've not read or mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver, look at this, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that His Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's pretty incredible. Let's keep going. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Wow. Immorality was... 
uh, rampant there in, in Corinth anyway. And now they this was known in the church. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't do the discipline. They didn't go to Him and try to correct that. And it had gotten up so far that God said delivering to Satan. That means putting out of the church right now and delivering over where Satan will do a work on him. Because he's going to be by himself. He's not going to have the protection of the church. Did you know the church protects you? They pray for you. You have fellowship. You feel at peace with God because you're at peace with others. That's the way it's supposed to work. But if you don't do that first step where you go to that person, then it has to go where two or three go to that person. Then you take it before the church. And then if that person doesn't uh, submit to God's truth and repent, then they're to be taken out. Well, this has gone so far where God said through Paul, put him out now. Put him out of the church where he could be restored and have the joy of salvation again because Satan is going to do some work on him. And you say, boy, does that sound right? Christianity, is that right? Well, I guess so. And and um, matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke 22.31 to Peter, Something rather incredible. And you would have thought that Jesus would have protected him from this happening. Luke 22.31 And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Oh, that's kind of scary right there. He doesn't call him the rock here. He doesn't call him Peter, does he? When he calls him Simon, he goes back to his humanness. He goes back to the flesh. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, so that's the great part about it, he intercedes for us, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. They're going to need it too. Uh, Satan has already asked. Guess what? I'm going to let him sift you. Jesus, why would you let Satan do this? You have all the power to keep that from happening. Well, we can be sifted too, can't we? Well, I prayed for you. Christ is our intercessor. He's always praying. He's already prayed. And His faith didn't fail. Now, it looked like it failed because three times He denied the Lord, didn't He? And He can say, see, there's failure. Yeah, in one sense. But was it ultimate failure? No. And Jesus came back after that and restored Peter into the joy of the salvation that he already had. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Go feed my sheep, Peter. Okay? It's okay. You're forgiven. Let's move on. And Peter did. Filled with the Holy Spirit. You see it in the book of Acts. And he's preaching the first sermon. He was sifted though. And man, he was scared whenever he realized that he denied his Lord. And Satan did that work. But see, God always has power over little Satan. He's nothing. We can't take Satan on. We can through the power of Christ and His Word. But the thing is, it's always Christ who is our captain. He is the victor, isn't He? We're more than conquerors because of Him. So, going back, it could be the case of an unbeliever who rejects Christ ultimately and our prayers are not going to be heard, at least in the way that we want. Or it could be possibly be a believer who has damaged the testimony of the church and, and Christ that the Lord takes that person out. And our prayers for them may not even be heard either. We keep praying... So don't give up your praying. And you know people that you want to continue to pray. But don't be surprised. Sometimes that may not come out the way that you want. Right? And we pray for people who have died in their sin. And we know that. But um, we, we, we keep praying, don't we? So that's, that's the idea. He just says, I can't tell you that you should make requests on behalf of people like that. Which is really another way of saying, don't expect the outcome you might otherwise expect. As John has been saying. It's an extreme case. And uh, Anyway, that's uh, about as good as what I can kind of glean from this passage. I, I hope it's helped out somewhat. 
uh, keep praying, but realize that it may not come out the way that you expect. Now, in verse 17, people might get a misunderstanding as you said this. And this really, I think, brings it out and clarifies everything. All unrighteousness is sin. And there is sin not leading to death. You know what he's saying here? John understands at this point then. Somebody may make more out of the one sin or sin that they've been doing that kills spiritually or the sin that kills the non-Christian eternally or kills the Christian physically. The Lord just takes His life. And someone, someone might make more out of it by saying, okay, is this a mortal sin or is this a venial sin, right? Romans 6.23 says this, the wages of sin is death. Here's where it comes back to this. Let's get this straight. All unrighteousness is sin. That's just all he says. All unrighteousness is sin. Do you know what? That means us too. You know what this is saying? There is a sin not leading to death. We are witnesses of that. Every one of us as we sit here this morning. There's a sin not leading to death. We haven't died yet. He hasn't taken us out. You know what? He could have. He certainly could have. Because we were all in sin. We deserve death, don't we? But most He doesn't take out. At least now. Up to now. But by God's mercy, God's grace, He continually keeps giving to us. His mercies are new every morning, right? We don't deserve that. We're actually living proof that there is sin not leading to death. We probably have sinned this week. Is it safe to say that? Possible we could have sinned. We might even could say it's possible that I might have sinned this morning. But He hasn't taken us out. We sin. And any sin is unrighteousness, but we still live and there is sin not leading to death. And so therefore... Aren't you glad people continue to pray for you? We, we have to remember this section is here to help us understand why God would not answer certain prayers. There's certain things He's going to have to do regardless of what we would like. And it might even be the right kind of prayer that we're saying. God is happy with that. But it's not going to be the way that we want. And, and there's an extreme case here in our First John passage. It's not the usual, uh, but what he's saying. We can have confidence in our prayers being answered. Do you have confidence? Sometimes we think, well, I pray, but I don't ever see anything really coming about. I could say that, but I know it not to be true. Because if I look back and... You know, that's why Thanksgiving is so important. If we look back and really see what all He has done in giving us life and eternal life, and we could stop right there. When you start thinking all the little details in your life, how providence has happened, and He's giving all these things to us, and we go, you know, you look back and you go, well, that wasn't that bad. I look at it now, I could see how God could use that. I guess He did. I didn't want Him to do it that way. But you know what? I thank the Lord that I'm here where I'm at now. He got me through that somehow. got me through it. We can have confidence. We have the resources of heaven at our disposal. Okay. We can sure, we can be sure that God answers our prayer. Now, verse 18. Here's another certainty. And He just unleashes a whole bunch of we knows now. Ready? We know that whatever is born of God does not sin. But he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Born of God. We know we're not dead in our sins anymore. For we have been what? Regenerated. We have been brought to life. We have new lives. It's not our nature to continually sin. Do we sin? Yeah. Boom, boom, getting missed. It's not a continual, ongoing thing. It's not a pattern. It's not our nature anymore. The nature's been changed. Our flesh is what we battle with, but our new nature 
is exactly what is happened to us. And so the power of sin is broken. We don't have to sin anymore. We now choose to sin. Unless he's born of God, that person will stay in that state or in that nature. And so that's why he says, we know that whoever is born of God, born from above, born again, given the Word of God by the Spirit of God and understanding that truth, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That's not our pattern anymore. We've seen this all the way through John when he says we do not sin. Does that that mean a believer can never sin again? Well, obviously not. John has already explained that. And he says we are to confess our sins. And if you say that there's not sin in your life, then you're lying, right? He said that in First John one nine. He made that clear. And then he, but there's a there's an ongoing pattern of sin, a continual sin. And if you are not a Christian, then you are in continual sin all the time. Even when you might even think a good thought here and there, you're still in sin because it's not pleasing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So a new nature. This power of sin is broken. No longer bound to sin. And you know we have the protection of the Savior. He who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Well, we know we don't keep ourselves in the sense that, okay, now I'm going to keep my salvation. I'm going to try all the best that I can and hardest. I think I can do this. Well, it's really our Savior who keeps us. He saves us and He keeps us saved. But we're keeping ourselves from our wicked one when we are born again. When we're born from above. Um, a Christian does not habitually sin. Christ keeps him. Our protector has the power to defeat the enemy and with his power then we operate in that and we become obedient. We struggle against sin but Christ keeps us safe. Look in John 17.6. Talking about, you know, remember in, in Luke 22 about Satan sifting Peter like wheat? Well, in John 17.6, here's a prayer that Jesus said for the disciples. I have manifested Your name, Father, to the men whom You have given Me out of the world. They were Yours. You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your Word. Now they have known that all things which You have given Me are from You. For I have given to them the words which You have given Me, and they have received them and have known surely, there's John, that I came forth from You, and they have believed that You sent Me. I pray for them, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. Boy, that's some protection, isn't it? Look in Jude. Just one book before Revelation. It has one chapter. So you go to verse 24 and you look at the keeping power of Christ. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's a power word. That able. I mean, that's uh, strength and might. That's dynamite here. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Does that excite you? He keeps us from stumbling to the point that we could stumble right on into hell. We're not going to stumble into hell. He's going to keep us. He's going to present us, matter of fact, sinless when He presents us before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Wow. That is powerful, isn't it? Look in 2 Timothy 4.18. He will keep us from that evil. And that's kind of where we're headed here. 2 Timothy 4.18. This is the power of God. This exalts Him. It's His Word, isn't it? And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. What kind of words come out of your mouth on that? To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Oh, it's just like Paul said, hey, I'm finished, Timothy. And he says, oh, by the way, greet Priscilla and Aquila. <laughs> but it's just like he finished right there. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work. Preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. Ultimately, He's going to take me out of this. I'm going to be preserved. And He knows that. He knows, just like 
John knew. And because of this, there's a certain holiness in our life that that happens. You desire now not to sin. You desire to do the right thing. You desire to glorify God. And so there is the holiness in us. He says, be ye holy for I am holy. And as we see what's going to happen to the, in the very end, because of His holiness that He's worked in us, we what? Work it out. Great. There's protection. And we will overcome the wicked one as it says here in our second John. We know that we are of God. We know that, don't we? We're born of Him. Man, we're in His family, Right? And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Satan has no grip, no hold on us. 1 John 2, 14. Same book. He says, I've written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you. And look at this. And you have overcome the wicked one. Satan, you've overcome him. You've already beaten him because of Christ's victorious, triumphant work on the cross. You are in Christ. You overcame the wicked one. How do you overcome? Well, First John has already written that it's our faith that is our victory. Our faith is our Nike, right? Nike. Conquerors. Victors. That's what Nike means. Our faith is the victory. The power of God secures us. He keeps us. Now our identity here is found in verse 19. We know that we are of God. We're from the family of God. We belong in the family of God because God has put us there. The world belongs to Satan, but we belong to God. And it says the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. The whole world is there. The world is like a baby being held in the arms of Satan. He holds them. They don't know us. What's the world? Well, the world is the economy. The world is the politics. The world is the religion. The world is the education. The world is the entertainment. The world is sports. The whole system, everything. And they lie in the lap of the evil one. The, the world is the whole system that, that's involved. Now, does that mean that we're not to be involved in politics, not to be involved in the economy and that kind of thing? No. But that whole system really is being ran ultimately by who? Satan. This is his dominion. Adam and Eve gave that up. But he was conquered at the cross. If you're in the family of God, you are no longer under his rule whatsoever. You're in, the, in another field. He's over there. You, I mean, he has nothing really where he. Uh, you have to obey his directions. You you have the choice of not to do that. Now you have that power. Was it First John two fifteen through seventeen? Do not love the world. Well, the world is well, there. Are, there are people, but you know, in the world. But the world is all oh, the system. Don't be caught up into all the things that are going on in the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. What's going to happen? And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. What's happening to the world? It's passing away. It's going to burn up. Don't get caught up in it. Don't invest your life into it because it's not going to last. It's going to be done. Two things that continue to exist. The Word of God that abides forever in our souls. And everything physical here is going to burn up. Of course, there's the atoms and and all that God has and somehow He's going to do this and He's going to recreate, give us a whole new creation. New bodies. What we have to look forward to but we're the people of God. We belong to God. We're linked to Him. Matter of fact, you are in Christ. You are in Him. You're in that realm. So we, we, we can say in verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. The Son of God, in verse 20, we see that this Jesus is the Son of God. This Jesus is God. We're in that family. 
We know that the Son of God has come. He, God Himself was incarnated in the flesh. God took on flesh. That's the Christmas story. That's where we're leading to for the next month, isn't it? Building up, building up. It's really about the incarnation. That's what all this is about. This, uh, this past last couple of days, you know, he had some fun with it. But the thing is, there's a system going on out there and that's not what we live for. You know, and it has some things, has some great deals and bargains, you know, and hey, if you can get the bargains, great. Hey, use God's money wisely. But at the same time, um, don't be talking people over the heads and shooting mace at them and pepper spray and shooting people because they have the thing that you wanted to buy and you can't get it anywhere else. <laughs> I really have to remind you of that, don't I? No. That's the world. Man, you know, it's not going to last forever. But we know that He's the Son of God. You know what John has just done? As he's wrapping this letter up, he has just taken us back to where he started. The Son of God. He's revealed to us supernaturally that Jesus is God. You didn't arrive at that by your own intellect. Did you know that? Oh man, I thought at least I did something. Surely I can think that. What You didn't even do that. It was He who came in and showed you truth. Opened you up. 1 Corinthians 2. The last section of 1 Corinthians 2 will tell you that. How can anybody understand God's Word and all His truth and His whole plan? Well, you can't. It's impossible. But we can. We can discern God's truth because the Holy Spirit is coming in us. Am I bragging about that? No. I'm bragging about God, though, of what He did because I know I couldn't do it. And that's the way we should look at it. We're in 1 John chapter 1, and here's the way we started. And we're getting ready to close it out now. You ready? 1 John chapter 1. Let's start at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which was seen with our eyes. This is a testimony, an eyewitness, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the Word of life. Hey, we saw it, we heard it, we felt it. Here we go. The life was manifested. This Word of life, it was manifested. People could see it. And we have seen. And we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. We saw it. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Right now, we're declaring this to you. That you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Do you have full joy? What's the message we have? God is light. God is light. There's no darkness in Him. We have fellowship with Him. Wow. Okay. Verse 21 of 1 John. Verse 20 says, We may know Him as true. We are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God. Jesus Christ is eternal life. This is a deity passage, folks. He closes out with what he was saying in verse 1 through 4. And then he closes out and he says, the person you know, Jesus Christ, he's God. He's God. There's no doubt about it. And John proves that in his gospel. Man, every chapter in there is all about Jesus being God. The deity of Christ is found there. And he says, this is the true God, folks. This is eternal life. You're not going to find eternal life anywhere else. There is no other answer. It's only in him. Boy, that's awful narrow, John. What does he say in verse 21? Little children. And he said that a lot, hasn't he? Little children. It's funny to think, why didn't he end with that? This is the true God and eternal life. Boom. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. You know what he does? He gets the application right here. He gives us great doctrine. Did you get that? Keep yourself from idols. Here's what you do. The world expresses itself in idolatry. That's what the world is about. They have all sorts of things to offer and people worship at at uh, those thrones in the sense of the, in our world it's materialism. You know, It operates on a substitution uh, um, instead of the reality. Rather than Jesus Christ, it's something else. All other gods are imposters. Everything else is imposters that takes away our attention from, from God. Don't let anything influence your beliefs. Stay away from anything that's not truth. Don't, t- don't even tamper with it. If it's not 
something that we can base our lives here if it's teaching something about a God or a way of life, a philosophy or something, and it's not based on this, stay away. Anything short of Christ is idolatry. Anything short of Him. Anything slightly less than the biblical truth. If we make out Christ to be something a little bit less than what He is, then stay away. It's idolatry. Um, Idolatry may not have a literal idol. It doesn't have to be a theological idol concerning maybe a substandard view of Christ, having a little bit lesser view of Him. It could be an idol in our hearts. A house, a car, a job, a loved one. Yeah, even that. It could be anything that goes in front of God. John, the beloved disciple who wrote this, remember the beloved one? He leaned on Jesus' breast that night before His death. And that's what He's wanting us to do right here. To lean on Jesus Christ. Complete confidence. That's what John wrote about. He wants us to have as much confidence as we possibly have. He wants us to be certain that He is everything we need. Christ is everything we need. Feed off of Him. The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, but we're safe in the arms of Jesus. That's where we're at. We lie in His lap. We lean on Jesus Shoulder, don't we? Blessed be His name. I trust that uh, this book, this epistle of 1 John, has been a blessing to us um, for what John wrote here through the power of the Holy Spirit, through what God gave 2,000 years ago, and we get to read it today, that far removed from them and still get the same meaning as they had or try to get that. And there it is. I think John tried to make it as easy as he could. And what he wanted to do was bolster our assurance. And he wanted to shaken the ones who had false assurance. I would also say my prayer is that our assurance would be bolstered because of this little letter that John, the great apostle, and a person that's just like us, wrote this. Are you assured? We can thank the Lord because of that. Let's pray.